Well, we're in week three of our series, Pressure Points, and we have looked at the pressure of temptation, uh, and we talked about that last week on it's, it's, it's not that we face temptation, it's how we respond and react to the pressure of it. In week one, we talked about the idea of trials, those difficult and dark circumstances that we all face, and it's again, how do we respond to those trials, knowing that God's purpose is to make us complete, lacking nothing. Well, today we're kind of going to shift in a little bit of a different direction, and it's a direction, and the first part of this message is not something we talk about very often. I mean, have you ever noticed that there are some things that are easy to admit than other things about yourself? Ever notice that there's some things about you when you look at your character you go, whoa, those ones are obvious. They need to be addressed. They need to be dealt with. But then there are other areas in our character that are a little harder for us to discern or detect, to admit, to acknowledge. We might even call them blind spots because we really don't see them. In fact, we're not even sure they're there. And I would guess that one of the things that most of us would say is not an issue when it comes to issues of our character that we wouldn't admit to that this is a challenge would be that we discriminate against other people in our world. Discrimination by definition is simply when I give preference to one person and I exclude another person so, uh, simply or solely based on an outward appearance a social or economic or racial standing, some financial status, some first impression that I have. And I think most of us want to believe of ourselves that we would never discriminate against another human being. We, would, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want that ever to be thought about us. I mean, we live in a culture of acceptance and equality, a culture of tolerance and rights. We're brought up to believe in our culture that there's no place for discrimination. And I think that most of us would say, you know what, that's not something that I would struggle with. So let me give you a few scenarios just to see how you really are doing in this area. Be honest with yourself. I mean, brutally honest this morning. Take this as kind of a test. Here's the first one. The house next door to you is for sale. And they're going to have an open house and you see three couples come by. And the first couple that comes by are definitely of a diff different ethnic background. And they're wearing the traditional dress of that ethnic background. And they come and they tour the house. Their skin is quite brown. The next couple get off their motorcycle, their Harley, and they take off their leather jackets and there's lots of tattoos and there's lots of piercings. And they wander through the house. The third couple are a mom and dad in their mid-30s and they got two little kids and they drive up in a minivan and they go to the open house. Here's the question. Who do you want to buy the house next door? Who is it? Which one of those three do you want? Be honest with yourself. If you're a man, you're a fairly crowded setting. Maybe the GO train or a bus and two women walk towards you and there's not an empty seat and one of them is a very tall, attractive blonde, beautiful woman, and the other is kind of a little overweight, clothes don't fit, kind of baggy, you know, uh, hair all over the place, which one do you give the seat to? Which one would you give the seat to? Thirdly, one of your kids, they've got two new friends at school. One lives around the corner in a very nice, neat, and reasonably expensive home, and they dress 
in a reflection of that, and the other lives a few blocks away in a pretty run-down home, trash on the lawn, weeds in the gardens, kids not well-dressed. Which one do you hope your kids will be friends with most? If you're hiring an employee and you have two equally qualified candidates based on their resume, and when they come in for the interview, one is obviously disabled and the other isn't, which one do you hire? You're renting out a basement apartment and two families come to see it. One is a single mom with a couple of kids in a beat-up car. The other is a young couple, no kids and fairly new car. Which one do you lean to renting your apartment to? You're a university student here. And you choose to live off campus and a group of you are renting a home. And you have one room left and you need to rent out that room and two people come. And both of them want the room and one of them is a very popular student on campus, one who, someone who looks pretty cool. The other's kind of a bit of a geeky or nerdy kind of person, and they don't have many friends. Which one would you give the room to? Be honest. Let's be honest. We face these kind of scenarios every day of our lives. We're forced to make a choice to give preference to someone, and we base it on an outward appearance, social or economic standing, and our first impressions. And don't tell me that you have never walked by a homeless person sitting on the street begging for money and had some negative kind of thought towards them, that you've judged them somehow. I think all of us to greater and lesser degrees in our lives have given preference to someone simply based on outward appearance, social standing, economic status over someone lesser. Sue and I, we occasionally walk the dog. She walks the dog all the time. I occasionally go with her to walk the dog. And when the weather's better, we go out. And as we're walking, we pass on the route, we take a walk, a house that absolutely looks run down. I mean, the gardens on the front are a disgrace. There are weeds growing everywhere. There's junk among the weeds. The front porch has got about two or three old broken down barbecues and a whole bunch of junky bikes. The cars in the driveway never look like they've ever been washed, and they're just falling apart. And I have to tell you, I've already judged those people. I've already discriminated against them. Whether, whether they are the nicest people or the nicest family, they'd be the nicest neighbors, I don't want them to be my neighbors. I've discriminated against them simply based on their outward appearance. And I feel bad about that sometimes because I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of judging someone based on an outward appearance, the color of skin, their social economic, uh, you know, standing or status. And out of that judgment, I've given preference to one over the other. And the ugly truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you've done it as well because I think all of us give preference to people who look like us, smell like us, act like us, and meet our standards over those who don't. All of us are one time or another have been guilty of what I would call reductionism, where we make a mental judgment of a person solely based on their external appearance. I think most of us have passed someone of a different color or race, someone with a disability, someone who's dressed poorly, someone who's quite overweight, someone with lots of tattoos or piercings, someone who's awkwardly social, 
socially, someone who might be homeless, someone who's an addict, someone of a different social standing, whatever it is, and we've made a judgment of that person solely based on their outward appearance. And some of us have made jokes of people in these groups. We put them down, and we've made them subjects of our humor. We all do it, at least I've done it from time to time. I've made a judgment and then I've discriminated based on that judgment. But we all do it. We all do it. It comes naturally. Here's why. It's the choosing of a king in Israel. And Samuel the prophet is looking at these different sons of a man by the name of Jesse, and they're going one son after another, and after the first son who looks like he should be king because he's tall and handsome and has this outward appearance, God says, no, no, it's not that one. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We all do this. And even though we know we shouldn't do it, even though we know that we're all equal in the eyes of God, even though that we know that the ground is level at the foot of the cross that Jesus died on, even though we know that, we can still do it. We choose one person over another simply based on external appearance. It says in Galatians, we know this to be true. We're all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. All of us were baptized into Christ. We've clothed ourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we're all what? One. The word one here means equal. We're all equal in Christ Jesus. We are all the same. There is no difference. And that's true about all of us as followers of Jesus. And yet we all do at times based on external appearances, based on our impressions, based on whatever we see, we make a judgment, and we prefer one over another simply based on that. And that's how James starts James chapter 2. He says these words, my brothers and sisters, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he reminds them who they are. These aren't some sort of pagan people. He says, these are believers in Jesus Christ. He then, he just nets it out. He says, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Now, the word favoritism literally means to lift the face. And in the ancient Near East in the first century and before that, when someone would go and plead their case before the ruler, before the king, they would get down on the ground and they would hold their head, their face down to the ground. And if the king wanted them to plead their case, he would say, lift your face. And they would lift their face and then they would be able to look at him eye to eye. They would be able to stand and see him as an equal and they would be able to plead the case. That's where the word comes from, partiality, favoritism. It comes from that. The definition means to give preferential treatment to certain people based on external circumstances, outward appearance, first impressions, or social and economic status. And then James says this is why we can't do it, or we shouldn't do it, or why it does happen. He gives us some information, and he begins to kind of net this out, and we get the Verse 4, he says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? 
and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, there's two things that are going on here. He uses the word become judges, and the idea of judging here is that I think I'm superior than someone else. I think I'm better than. It's all about pride. It's looking down at another person. The idea of judging here is looking down on another person. And when we discriminate, we look down on people. We think we're better, higher up on some social ladder than they are, and therefore we have the right to look down. I find it amazing. We have this social ladder, and we want to be accepted by the people above us on the ladder, but we're willing not to accept those who are below us and thinking, oh, well, they should accept me, but I don't need to accept you. And it's really about pride. It's really about thinking we're better. It's really about superiority. Pride is at the root of this. Pride is at the root. That's what he's saying here. We think we're better than somebody else. We're higher up on a social ladder. Have you not discriminated and become judges? You you, you know, you think you're better with evil thoughts. Now, what he means here by the word evil is the word means to wound or to inflict pain. And you say, well, nobody sees my thoughts, so my thoughts never wound anybody, only my words. And that's what we're going to deal with next week. But I'm telling you, thoughts can wound, and you know it to be true. Because if we're honest, we all know there were times when, some, when we were meeting someone or connecting with someone, and you could tell what they were thinking about you was written all over their face. Their body language gave it away, their disinterest their attitude, whatever. And you knew that they didn't have any interest. They could care less. You weren't important to them. And you felt that. I don't care when it is in your life. We've all felt that. And simply based on the thoughts that they had that played out in their attitude, we were wounded. Maybe it was only slight. Maybe it was insignificant. But sometimes it can be far greater. And that's what happens when we do this. When we discriminate, we think we're better and we wound others. And he says, that's what we do. Now, James goes on and says, you need to be careful about this because it can come and kind of bite you in the end. Literally, he says this, you've insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? If you go into the next verse, He says this, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him who you belong to? And what he is saying is, he says, sometimes you give preference to people because of something in their appearance or something the way they look or something that they could do for you, and it comes back to bite you in the end. He says, and he's talking about rich or poor. That's kind of the the framework of which he's talking about making these judgments. And he says, it's the rich who exploit you. It's the rich who have dragged you in the court. And it's the rich who have nothing to do with God. And it can come back to bite us. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. That we can be disappointed to the person we gave preference to because it can come back in a negative way. Then he goes on in verse 9 and he says this. But if you show favoritism, he nets it out. You sin. And you are convicted by the laws of lawbreaker. He finally says, if you're not convinced it's coming out of pride, if you're not convinced that it's wounding, if it's, you know, he says, by the way, you're sin. You're a sinner. And he goes on to talk about two other sins that he puts in the same category. Adultery and murder. He says, this is in the same category. We don't think about this. We don't think when we make these judgments. We don't think when we, you know, make these preferences when we discriminate. Even if it's subtle, that it's any kind of sin. It's not a big deal. He says different. He says different. 
And I think James is saying that when we show favoritism, when we discriminate based on the external, it comes from pride, it wounds others, it can come back to haunt us, and it's sin. And he's saying if anybody shouldn't do this, it should be the community of faith. The community of faith. Because we have been forgiven by the grace and mercy of God, and we didn't deserve it. God, who was greater, looked down, comes to our level, becomes one of us, dies on a cross, gives us grace and mercy, and we should embrace that, and we didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. Those who have been, we are people who have been shown favor. We've been accepted by it, adopted by the God of the universe. And we should never do it to another person. If there's anybody that should be humble and not proud, it should be those who have admitted their own brokenness and sinfulness, which is us. And we've admitted who we are, and it should humble us. And we should realize that we've received the grace and the mercy of God. That God looked down on us, and we need to do that with others, with grace and mercy and acceptance. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know, for you know, he's saying experientially, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've experienced it, that though he was rich, higher up on the ladder, he became poor, climbed down on the ladder, so that those of us in our poverty, spiritually is what he's talking about, we could be made rich again. We could be made rich. Every person needs to be accepted and treated the same, no matter what they're like on the outside. There's no place for prejudice or for racism or for partiality in the life of any church or in the heart of any follower of Jesus. There just isn't. And James kind of gives an illustration of what they did. He says this, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Guy's got the Armani suit and a whole pile of bling on is what he's saying. And a poor man in shabby clothes, you know, kind of just sort of very kind of rumply, not very good clothes. He says, if you show, he says, if you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, You've discriminated among yourself. That's what you did. You looked at two people based on their outward appearance and their social standing and said, I'll give preference to this one over the other. I'll give preference to this one over the other. And James says, this is not right. And it comes from a heart of pride, and it wounds other people, and it sometimes comes to bite you in the end, and it is sinful behavior. And yet it gets done all the time. It does. I grew up in churches where people were given preference based on their social standing and the amount of money they gave. I grew up in a middle-class church that was on the edge of a very poor area, and we used to send buses and bring all of these poor kids into our church community, and we always looked down on them. Always. And James says that we need to, as followers of Jesus, we need to choose humility, understanding what we've received, who we are. We are sinful people that have been rebuilt and restored by God Himself. And we cannot, we cannot show this kind of favoritism or partiality. It can't happen in the community of faith or to individual followers of Jesus. There's no place for it. That's what He says. Now, it seems as He's addressing this issue, He kind of focuses on 
an, another issue. He gets, uh, his address focuses on a bigger issue and how the community of faith should act on that issue. And it's all about the idea of how do we respond to the poor in our culture. It's as if he's dealing with this issue, but he talks about the poor, and he talks about poverty and how we need to respond. And what James is building on is one of the major themes in the Bible. In fact, if you look at the number of verses that have something to do with dealing with the poor, it's maybe the third or fourth major theme. It is. And really, it's the marching orders of the community of faith in the Old Testament, and it's the marching orders of the community of faith in the New Testament called the church, and for us as an extension of it. And basically, the summarizing theme is help the poor, don't harm them. And there are thousands of verses that kind of talk about this. I just want to give you a sampling of it this morning. It says this, this is about God. God is the he here. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but He frustrates the way of the wicked. He says that this flows right from the heart of God, God's care for those in poverty. The writer Solomon says in Proverbs 14, 31, he who oppresses the poor, in other words, ignores them, doesn't care for them, makes it harder for them, shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Because you see, that's the heart of God. And when we are kind to those in need, we honor God by our behavior. One of the more familiar verses in Scripture that gets quoted a lot, Micah 6, 8, he, God, has shown you, O man, O woman, what is good. This is the good thing and what God requires of you to act justly. This is justice in action, compassion in action. This is caring in action, to act justly, to love mercy. It means to have a compassionate heart and to do it all because you walk humbly with God. He says, walk humbly with God, show mercy, act justly. This is what God desires. This is what God requires. This is what is good. In Isaiah 58, 6 to 7, these people are messing up. They, they think they come to worship and they sing and they give their animals and sacrifice and they do all these wonderful things and they fast and they pray. And he says, forget it. That's not what I want. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, the religious sort of spiritual act of worship to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. It is, is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? What he is saying is that is the kind of worship that God wants. James builds on this himself, James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and not to be polluted uh, by the things of this world. Paul, echoing the words of Jesus, says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. The word could not, is not physically or spiritually, it's, it's, it's more, it's poor. Help the poor. Remembering the words that Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
When you go to Luke chapter 4, Jesus is starting His ministry, and He gives us marching orders, which come right out of Isaiah 61 that was a prophecy about the Messiah. And it said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness the prisoner. He talks about proclaiming the year of God's favor, to comfort who, those who mourn, to bestow on, the, on them who mourn the crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He goes on and he says, you will be the rebuilders of ancient ruins and restore the place long devastated. They will build ruined cities. They have been devastated for generations. Jesus said, that's what I've come to do. I've come to do all those those things, to care for the poor and the broken and the marginalized and help broken cities to be restored. See, I think Jesus dreamed of and designed a community of faith that would do this. The followers would go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's talking about going and sharing the life-changing teaching that Jesus would give them. He said, that's your marching orders. You need to go. Don't huddle together. Go. And to preach. But Jesus also said, as the Father has sent me, and Jesus said about caring for the poor and marginalized, I send you. And you see, it's this balance between preaching the truth of Jesus, the life-changing truth, but it's caring for the poor and the marginalized. Here's the problem. Some churches go, oh, no, it's all about the preaching. Other churches go, no, it's all about caring for the poor. Here's the deal. You cannot be a church that reaches people far from God and ignore the poor, nor can you care for the people who are poor and not share the message of Jesus with them. It's got to be both. And I, th- I don't think you can do one without the other. And I think it e- it's easy for us at Lakeside because of the ministry of Hope House. I think it's incredibly easy to think, oh, well, as a church, we're doing our part. And we are. But I think we need to remind ourselves again of the marching orders of Jesus for His church is to teach the life-changing message of Jesus and to care for the broken and the marginalized in our culture. It's easy to believe at Lakeside we're doing fine because we have invested significantly. But when we think that we as a church are doing it, it allows us as individuals off the hook and say, I don't have to do anything because my church is doing it and I go to that church. It's just not the case. It is not the case. I think not only do we need to be reminded, but we need to remind ourselves there is so much more that we should do and can do. And I believe that Lakeside needs to work at being more and more a church for the city. A church for the city. Not a church in the city where we simply exist. No, a church for the city where we totally engage. Not a church that is against our city and all the moral wrongs that are happening in our city. No, we, we, we're not to do that. We're to be a church for our city, not against them. We're to not be a church of the city where we compromise our standards to fit in. No, we're a church for the city, and it's different. A church that is engaged in what is happening. And I am so proud of the members of our church. One of them is running for mayor, a couple of them for city council, that they're standing up and saying, hey, we want to make a difference in our city, but we all need to be engaged in what is happening. We need to continue to have a biblical worldview. We need to have a biblical moral standard. We need to have make Jesus the primary focus. 
We need to have God's presence being obvious, but we need to make it obvious that we love our city, that civic leaders celebrate our presence, and if we weren't here, there would be something missing. We need to be a church for our city. I want you to imagine a church community that was so influenced by the power of the good news of Jesus that they seized every opportunity to proclaim and live out the good news for the good of their city. I want you to imagine a church that physically and spiritually served the poorest of the poor, and they called the current focus on wealth in that culture for what it is. The focus on wealth is wrong. Imagine a church that is the epicenter of a straight-up, spirit-filled, God-fearing revival where thousands of people found genuine relationships with Jesus. Imagine a church that helped thousands of people struggling with brokenness and addictions and woundedness. Imagine a church that built homes for the elderly, housed all the orphans in the city, and found shelter for the homeless, and led immigrants to integrate into the culture. Imagine a church that taught wealthy business entrepreneurs and owners to create a double bottom line, one for their profit and one to care for the people in poverty. Imagine some entrepreneurs starting a second business, a social enterprise, solely, solely for the profits going to make a difference and to carry out the ministry of that church. Imagine a church that boldly shared the life-changing message of Jesus. They lived out the values of Jesus, a new community described by Jesus and demonstrated in the book of Acts. The question is, since we read about the church beginning in the book of Acts, has any church like that existed? Has there? There haven't been many, but there are a few. And I just want to briefly this morning tell you the story of one church. We'll put on the side screens a picture of their pastor. He was a young man when he took over this ministry. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That's a picture of him here. And behind him is the picture of the church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. We'll show you a picture of what an artist drawing of what it looked like from the back to the front of the church as Spurgeon was teaching. A little background. This was in London in 1852. The Industrial Revolution began in England, and by the mid-1850s, people had left the rural farmland, and they flocked to the big cities. And the infrastructure of the big cities, including London, could no longer handle all of the poverty that came with that. There were lots of laborers and lots of workers, but there were also an increase of poverty in London and lots of brokenness. And the city was in crisis, and the leaders didn't want know what to do, and many of the churches were moving to the suburbs. But Sir Burgeon said, we will not. We are in the center of the city, and we will remain. And he trained workers so they could find jobs. They created almshouses where people who lost their jobs could live until they found new jobs so that they weren't homeless, which was, a critical, was a, such a critical difference to the poor houses of that day. They built homes to house the elderly, orphanages that housed, cared for, and educated thousands and thousands of orphans. They created homes for single mothers who had been abandoned by their husbands or who were widows. They started a program where business entrepreneurs used their effort, knowledge, and expertise to start businesses for the sole purpose of paying for these care centers that the church put in place. They served the needs of their city in such a way that if they had closed down, the city would have gone in crisis. They were a church for their city. But they taught the life-changing message of Jesus as well. And because of the credibility of what this church was doing in that city, because of the powerful preaching of Charles Spurgeon. Thousands of people far from God began to flock to the church. People in poverty, people of social standing. It got so full 
that they had to ask members of the church, the followers of Jesus in the church, to stay home once a month so there'd be enough room for the guests. That wouldn't be a problem at Lakeside. But it was, uh, you know, they made that happen. 5,000 people attended weekly worship, and Spurgeon's sermons were published in the largest newspapers in London. It was a church for the city. It seized the opportunity to make a difference. It impacted the poor, but also the wealthy and the influential. And I believe such a church can exist again. I do. Maybe I'm a dreamer. But I think such a church can exist. Yes, the issues are different. The issues are different. We have more social safety nets. But let me tell you, as time goes on, those safety nets are beginning to disappear. And somebody's got to take the, the challenge of, these, of caring for those who are falling through the net. And I think it's got to be lakeside in our community. I really do. One of my, this, I love this verse. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. It says this. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been carried into exile. In other words, the city of which you've been placed by God, because that's why they were in exile. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray the, to the Lord for it, because if the city prospers, you too will prosper, community of faith. What a great verse. But what does it take to be that kind of church? Well, James tells us. He tells us. Number one, we need to understand the reasons for poverty. Understand the reasons for poverty. Understand why people are in poverty. He says this, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? Now you say, how does that verse apply? What was happening in that Roman culture was when you were rich, you were blessed by the gods, and when you were in poverty, you were cursed by the gods. And that had been bleeding over into the church and the people in the Roman world and, and it was influencing the church and they were saying, well, the reason someone is rich is because they're blessed by God, and if you're poor, you're not blessed by God. And he goes, no, 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 let me counteract. That is not the reason for poverty. Here's, let me just remind you that God, God has chosen them to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. God has not taken his hands off them. He's blessing them. He's choosing them. And in our culture, there are these views on poverty. And you get sort of this, what I call the liberal, not the big L liberal political party, but more of a liberal view of poverty, who say the reason people are in poverty is because it's circumstances. It's because of uh, forces beyond their control, racial prejudice, the economy, joblessness, other social conditions. People with a more conservative view, again, not the political party, just a more conservative view, say, well, it's a breakdown in character quality, self-control decisions. It's the habits and practices of the poor themselves that cause this. Bible says, well, it's kind of both. Bible talks about exploiting the poor, oppressing the poor, excessive interest rates on the poor. Bible talks about natural disasters and circumstances beyond people's control lead to poverty. That internal habits and character qualities of the poor lead to. It's, it's, Bible says to us that why people are in poverty is a very complex issue. And yet most of us lean to blaming the poor for some reason they're in poverty. We say things like, if they would just get out and get a job. If they stop buying beer and smokes, if they kick that habit or addiction, don't buy expensive cell phones and big screen TVs. Stop buying junk food or fast food for their kids. That's what we think. Come on, come on. You've thought it. We're middle class people. That's what we think. But the, the, the causes of poverty are much more complex than this. And there's a book that if you want to understand this better, 
that we use as Hope House is kind of a foundational thing. It's called Bridges Out of Poverty. And it says there are eight reasons, and some of them, and they're so vastly different. And I just want to kind of put them up on the screen real, care, real uh, quickly here. Sometimes people are poor because of financial resources. They just don't have the resources. They just lack them. They don't have the money to buy goods and services. But sometimes it's emotional resources, being able to choose or control emotional responses. When, and, and, and instead of choosing negative situations, when something negative happens, to choose an even worse negative response. A self-destructive behavior of choice often when difficult circumstances come. It's the ability to have perseverance or stamina or wise choices. So sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's a lack of mental resources, the skills able to read and to write and to compute. Sometimes they just don't have the resources. Sometimes it's spiritual resources, believing that there's hope and a divine purpose and guidance. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes they don't have the physical health or mobility um, to work. Sometimes it's a lack of support systems, family and friends who can come around and support. You know, I think of a single mom who has no family or or, or, uh, support system around her. When one of her kids gets sent home from school and they're sick, she has to leave her job. And she loses the pay, and she faces, if this happens time and time again, termination because she has no support system. Or it could be the lack of role models. You know, um, let me give you that next one. The lack of role, role models. And relationships. People who can say, this is what it means to, you know, to, to, to make these kind of choices and how to spend money and, you know, all of those other things. Uh, role models that nurture and guide and give wisdom. Role models who aren't engaging in destructive behavior themselves. And then it's the lack of coping skills. And it's that inability to handle difficult circumstances because you don't have a positive mindset or skills to deal with them in a rational, logical way. And it can be one of those eight. It can be many of those eight. And yet, it's, it's not just financial resources. And we need to understand so we don't judge, so we don't feel superior. Understanding why helps. Second thing he says, though, we've got to realize, we've got to realize that it is our responsibility Not only do we have to understand why, we need to realize it's our responsibility to deal with it. He says this, if you really keep the royal law. When he's talking about a royal law, a king or a Caesar, when they made a law, came right from the mouth of the Caesar or the king, was called a royal law. He says, if you really keep the royal law, saying that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourselves. You're doing right. Our responsibility is to love our neighbor. And, and, you know, Jesus was wandering and teaching, and somebody came up and said, I want to love my neighbor, but I want to exclude the list of who's on my neighbor. So who's my neighbor? And Jesus told that very familiar story of the Good Samaritan, where a, a, a guy is bypassed by people of his own tribe because they're too busy or they don't care or there's, a, you know, there's apathetic, whatever reasons. And yet someone who is from another ethnicity, who he, the guy who's been beaten and robbed, actually despises, that guy, the Samaritan, reaches down and he cares for him. And Jesus said, who is your neighbor? The one who needs your help and who you extend mercy. Jesus said, nobody's getting off the hook here. And it is our responsibility individually and as a community to care for those in need. It is not the government's responsibility. It is our responsibility to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And there is no excuse. And God takes this seriously. In fact, it says in Proverbs 21, 13, those who ignore the cries of the poor will cry out and not be heard. In other words, you ignore the cries of the poor and God might not answer your prayers. He might not even listen to them. That's how seriously God 
takes this. And so it's our responsibility. Thirdly, it takes compassion. It takes compassion. He says this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word mercy here is a Greek word, elios, which can be translated compassion as well. And here's what it means. It means to have deep feelings of sympathy and sorrow for the misfortune of another and a strong desire to alleviate that suffering. It's about feeling the pain of someone else and the desire to do something about it. And I think what fuels compassion is gratitude. If we look at all that we have, our jobs, our possessions, our homes, our cars, our education, everything we have, if we see them as a blessing of God, then I think we have compassion. If we thank God, we have compassion. If we think, I earned it, I'm entitled to it, I deserve it, it's all because of me, then we will think we are superior and we will say, I have everything I have because I earned it and I worked for it, and you don't have anything because you haven't worked for it and you haven't earned it. It makes us feel superior. And when we stop seeing the things that we get from God as blessings from God, that they come from His hands, we stop doing that, we will feel superior because we think, I did it. And it feels pride and superiority. And that stands in the way of compassion. The Bible is clear in so many places. All we have and all we are all come from the very hand of God. He could take it away in a heartbeat. We need to see them as blessings. That's why that saying, I've kind of paraphrased it, but the saying goes, but for the grace of God, that'd be me. If it hadn't been for the blessings and the grace of God, I could be in the same circumstances. I'm going to tell you, and I'll say this as straight as I can, if you do not have compassion for the poor, you likely have no gratitude for God because they go together. They go together. Now, lots of people get this far on the journey. Yes, I understand. Yes, I feel compassion. Yes, I know it's my responsibility. I'm fine. He says, no, there's one more part of this. A call to action. You ever wonder why these verses are here? Because they follow this. Sometimes we divide the Bible up by chapter headings that somebody artificially put into. James didn't imagine that there would be a break in the the writing here. He just says these words. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be fed, I'll pray for you. I didn't put that, just me reading between the lines. But does nothing about this physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, it's dead. We can have all the right attitudes, but we better put it into action. We need to put it into action. And it might be sacrificing financially so someone else can be fed. It might mean sharing some of our business profits with Hope House or Lakeside so we can be, continue to be a church for the city. It might mean um, taking a bag today while the city-wide food drive is on, and filling up that bag and bringing it back. It might be understanding what are the most important things that we need on the shelves at Hope House, and every week you go shopping, just buy one of those items or two of those items and bring them in. And if you say, well, what's on the list? We can help you with that. It might mean volunteering here at Lakeside or at Hope House or 
in one of our care compassion ministries. It might mean trying to figure out how to start a social enterprise, a business where the total profits make a difference in the community. It might mean coming up with, we're calling these things outposts, an idea where you can make a difference in the city and you're going to lead it and you're going to figure out, I'm going to fund that initiative. I'm going to make a difference. I would love the day to come. I really would. Where someone would walk up to me and say, you know what? I've got a number of rental properties and I want to give you one. It's yours, Lakeside. And you can house immigrants coming to Canada. You can house single moms. You can house anybody in need. It's yours. It's your gift. There are so many ways we can help, big and small ways, all of us. We can put it into action. If we say, you know what? I understand why. It's my responsibility. And I feel it. And we need to make a difference. And I want to make a difference. And I want to do something about it. You know, I think it would be kind of cool that 150 years from now, someone's doing a message somewhere in the world on a Sunday morning, and they're talking about a church for their city, and they would use us as an illustration. It would be our picture on the screen. Not mine, just ours. Not for the reasons of recognition. That's not why we would do it. But it would be kind of cool if it was true, wouldn't it be? Because if that happened, I can't imagine how many people in the Guelph community and people in our towns and cities around Guelph and people in other parts of the world would find help and hope because we chose to be a church for our city and a church for our world. And let me just thank you for the great job we've done so far. We have done a great job, but there's more to do. Let's commit together. Let's commit together to being a church for our city. And let's commit together today. Let's commit together today to be very careful about not judging other people to the best of our ability and not giving preference based on that judgment. It's hard. That one's hard. I've given this message and I'll do it tomorrow for sure, for sure, because it's hard. But let's just say, I want the courage. At least I know about it and I want to do something about it. And if we just make a few less decisions that way, we're moving in the right direction. Let's be a church for our city and let's be individuals who care about the people we meet. Let's pray. Father God, I, it's a different kind of a message today. It's not one that I saw coming out of your word. And yet, as James writes, I realize I was so convicted by this this week. The first part especially, but I do sometimes make judgments and I give preference. I show disinterest. And you've convicted me and I want to make changes in my life in that area. And I have a feeling others do as well. And Father, I just pray that we could be a church for our city, not as a church by name for our city, but the individuals collectively who make up this church, because that's what the church is all about, just the individuals who make it up, that we would have a passion to make a difference so that lives could change and people could be fed and clothed and broken people could find wholeness. And so just convict us, Lord, through your Spirit on how we can do that in our own individual way as you have blessed us, and out of gratitude, may we bless others. And we pray these things in your name. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So maybe this morning you just kind of said, hey, you know what? I'm, you do that, me too. Maybe you just want to pray with someone about that or pray. Maybe you've been the target. Maybe you've been the target 
where someone else got the preference and you were judged. You know what that feels like and you just want to pray with someone or maybe there's a life issue you want to pray with that's just kind of going on in your life. There'll be some great people up here to pray. But let's not go here with heavy hearts going, oh man, I felt like i got to change some things. These are all good things. None of us are perfect. We can just move in the right direction. Caring for others because of the way we see them and caring for our city because God's called us to do it. And we do it together and we do it in community. God bless. Have a great week.